Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today is Friday, December 6th, although I probably won't be releasing this episode for at least another week. I am moving out of LA. I'm going to be traveling. I at least relatively know where I'll be going through next April. Um, But the point is everything is being packed up and uh, the next few weeks in particular are going to be a bit jet setty. So I figured I would record the intro to this episode now before I left. And uh, not only that, but Today feels like the perfect day to record the intro to this episode. It's always interesting to me what ends up happening in transitions um, and and how it all sort of ends up working together so beautifully and with so much meaning. This episode today is with Francis Weller. He wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow that I read at some point in early 2017, and it left a pretty profound mark on me and my psyche, and I would probably say that it's at least within the top three of my most favorite books of all time. I hate picking favorites of anything, Uh, but there's no way that I can't say that this is the book I both appreciate and recommend maybe the most. Um, when I started this podcast, Francis Weller's name was at the very, very top. And I really wanted to meet up with him in person um, and made plans to do so. But when I was up in Northern California, where he is, Um, There were a lot of wildfires and he was evacuated, so we weren't able to do this in person, Um, but we did do it over Zoom, and uh, I think you'll agree that the conversation turned out just fine, (laughs) just as fine as it would in person. Um, I do hope one day I can get up to his neck of the woods again and maybe record another podcast and uh, potentially take part in some of the workshops that he does. Um, he talks about grief and grief outside of the context of the death of a person, which was something I hadn't totally considered prior to reading his book. 
Um, and really prior to sort of going through the huge transition that I went through a couple of years ago where I confronted a lot about myself and my past that I had very strategically um, avoided doing up until that point. And within those realizations was a lot of things to grieve, um, grieving the loss of um, a potential relationship that I thought I could have with somebody, grieving the loss of just actual relationships, grieving the loss of so many of my frameworks of viewing the world, um, grieving the loss of, you know, the young me that I don't think was loved in all the ways she deserved to be loved. Um, it's an interesting period of time when you move from one place to another. And I'm really grateful to Francis's book and other books that I've read and other experiences that I've had with grief because in feeling all of the deep emotions that have to do with loss, um, again, outside of actual death, I, I really can't think of anything that's been more meaningful to me in my own self-awareness and to helping me get to where I'd like to go. So it's interesting to me that this episode, or at least my recording of this intro, is happening on the day that I leave, um, because there's certainly as excited and optimistic, optimistic and grateful as I am for this transition, um, there's also sadness there. And instead of saying, you know, well, you should just be grateful for all these opportunities you have and look at everything on the horizon, you know, all of that's true, but it lives alongside the fact that transitions are always a loss in some way. There's really no way to transition without there being a loss. You're moving from one thing to the next thing. And even if the thing behind you stays in some capacity, a lot of it is behind you. I had this kind of profound moment when I was packing up my apartment and I had put all of these different quotes and photographs up on a couple of cabinets that I had. And this was an apartment that I lived in by myself and, uh, uh, which I hadn't done in maybe forever. Um, and I realized as I was standing there sort of taking down all of these quotes and these photographs that not just that cabinet, but that the entire apartment and that tired, uh, that entire period of my life, a couple of years, but in, uh, 2017 and 2018, like that apartment, uh, housed this experience that I went through where I was remembering who I was. So it was oozing with everything that was me from ideas, you know, in these quotes that really resonated with me to art and imagery and photography that I took or that resonated with me. Um, everything I put in the apartment for the most place for the for the most part in terms of furniture, decoration, like it was just all me and I didn't to I sort of knew this at the time that that's what I was doing, like coming back to myself, but it really wasn't until I started to sort of take everything down. Did I recognize how intense that process was? And 
you know, when I was younger, I think I had a pretty good idea of who I was. And then with all throughout my 20s, I allowed that to disappear. I allowed someone to take it away from me. I convinced myself that I couldn't be that person and that I had to be someone else uh, and that I had to settle in multiple ways. And then during these couple years, I realized that wasn't true. And so much of what I was grieving was (laughs) were those lost 10 years. And this place was so important for me to I mean, it almost felt like I was like tattooing myself with myself, like everywhere I looked was like, Anya, this is who you are. This is what you believe in. This is the type of life that you want and you deserve. And although this transition for me of moving out of L.A. and traveling and then going to Colorado and, you know, hopefully building a home there, although all of those things are everything I've always wanted, I realized as I took down these quotes that there was fear and that there were things that I was sad to leave behind. I had the thought when I was taking down the quotes of being afraid I might forget again. If I take down all these quotes from this cabinet, if I pack up this furniture, honestly, mostly left most things behind because I'm not going to need them where I'm going. If I leave all this stuff here, if I take down all these quotes, will I forget again? Will I let someone convince me otherwise again? And not only that, but even though that time in my life that that apartment enclosed was super painful, it was also the most meaningful time of my life, without a doubt. I experienced the most beauty and the most gratitude and the most connectivity to the everything around me that I had ever. And so that too is sad and I have emotions about leaving that place. And big picture, I was just having a conversation last night with friends about transitions and We were commenting on how beautiful all of the different transitions were with us and within our relationship to each other and reflected on how at multiple times in our lives, there are times when we need to make decisions about something. There are times when we need to move into a different place, move on, um, realize we made a mistake they kind of, depending on the severity of them, you know, they sort of always feel like little mini deaths or potentially really large deaths. I think when it comes to transitions, if you really want to get somewhere, it requires a, a leap of faith and it requires you to form a relationship with fear in a pretty intimate way. I tried so many different things to like get around the transition through distraction or relationship or just like, well, maybe if I can, I like trying to outsmart the universe or something. And not only did that not work, but when I didn't do that, when I just leaped, it always felt sort of violent. Like I was, you know, breaking out from some sort of prison or jumping off of a cliff 
every single time that I did one of those in a major way, I didn't know what would happen. It wasn't a transition of like, oh, okay, I see what's up ahead, so I'm going to go there now. This was like, I have absolutely no fucking idea what's going on here. And normally it means I'm letting go of a person or a thing or a place that means something to me, and I have to walk away from that before I get the new thing. I can't wait around for the new thing while I hold on to this other thing. Like there has to, there's a, there's a place in between the two. And that place is terrifying. But in all of my experiences and the experiences that I've talked to everybody else about, it's insane how quickly things happen once you make that decision. Like the floodgates open. Like you're in a room and a thousand doors suddenly appear. But it's never worked without taking that really scary step of, I can feel this isn't right for me anymore, or I need to make this transition. And I really don't know how it's going to turn out. But in accepting that regardless of how it turns out, if it does or if it doesn't, or what it looks like, by accepting that you just don't know, somehow that's what makes the next step possible. And I think, you know, obviously I think some avoidance of that place is just the fear in and of itself, but I also think that that place has a lot of sadness in it. And if there's one thing that I feel that we all try to avoid, it's pain and sadness. And that's one of the many reasons I appreciate Francis Weller and the work he does so much, because he creates spaces for people to be able to feel that pain alongside one another, which makes it a hell of a lot scarier. And when you feel that everyone's there with you and that you're supported, and when you understand that everyone has these emotions and this grief and this sadness and you realize it's not taboo and there's nothing wrong with you, it makes that transition easier. And I hope through this podcast and through various other means that we can all help create those same spaces where people can move around and make decisions and live the life they want to live because they feel like they're being held up. I mean, I don't know how to quantify what type of difference it would make if we all felt supportive enough to move on when it was time to move on, to make a new, drastically different decision when we realized we needed to. How many different superficial things prevent us from doing that? And if we felt supported by a group of people who loved us, how much more would we get done in the world because we would have more courage to live a big, meaningful, beautiful, impactful life? I think we'd get a lot more done. <laughs> I think collectively, I mean, this is so fucking hyperbolic, but Collectively, we're so much more powerful than we are individually. And I think it's imperative not only to make these decisions and these transitions, but then to turn around and tell that story to other people. 
I think most of the stories I feature on this podcast have a lot to do with that transition, the deconstruction of something and the construction of something new, which always involves a death of sorts. Whether you were raised in a fundamentalist religion and then realized you didn't believe any of it and that it was holding you back, whether you were raised by someone who made you believe you weren't worth uh, love or you didn't deserve to live a beautiful life with everything you wanted. Hopefully, as we grow older, we continue to uncover all of the different lies that were told, told to us that limited us. And every time we come to terms with one of those lies, every time we come to terms with one of those ways that we gave ourselves the short straw, there's pain in that. There's pain in the loss of time. There's pain in the loss of connectivity. And if we don't confront the sadness in that we can't appreciate any of the joy in the future. I remember when I first came to terms with some of the stuff from my childhood and my therapist asked me, you know, so how do you feel now about yourself knowing all of this, knowing the circumstances within which you were raised? And I immediately said, well, you know, I'm really glad that it all happened to me because it made me the person that I am today. And I believed that, and that's true. But what she was trying to get me to see was that I was skipping over all of the emotion around that. I jumped right into the logical conclusion. I tried to skip all of the pain. There's a lot of sadness in coming to the recognition around the circumstances of my childhood. And yes, while it will eventually allow me to become who I am, as it has already, I think that only works if you embrace the pain, you embrace the realization. There's anger there, there's sadness there, there's confusion there. There's so much there. And we're so afraid to go there. So... I hope this episode with Francis helps everyone realize the magic in that place. I hope the episodes that I've put on this podcast have helped as well. I hope that I've been vulnerable enough with my own transitions, vulnerable enough in, sh in sharing that Although I might be doing all of these different things all the time, that there's a lot of complexity within those emotions. And exemplifying that when we allow ourselves to go to those scary places where we don't know what there is at the end of the tunnel, that there is a light. <laughs> as stupid as that may sound, it's there. Trust me. I remember when I was going through all the shit I was going through, my dad would always say, I know you have no idea what it looks like at the end of this tunnel, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me 
that something probably bigger and better than you ever imagined is at the end of this. This sucks. I don't know how long this is going to last, but it will change. And I, I had zero uh, evidence <laughs> to believe what he was saying, but I just fucking believed him because I respected him. And I think part of it, too, is I saw what he went through at phases in his life in order to live the life that was authentic to him. And I knew that if he could do that, if he could risk what he risked and come out on top, that maybe I could, too. It's why I like showcasing stories like this, because I think sometimes we're just we, we're not going to know and we're not going to have the faith ourselves. But if we can trust one person, if there's one person that we trust that says you're going to make it, you're going to be okay, it's going to get better, it's going to change, then I think maybe that's enough. So hopefully if you're in that place right now, you trust me or you trust one of the many voices I've tried to showcase on this podcast. I so want us all to keep making these leaps of faith. I think it's the most magical, meaningful, deep and profound part of life. So on that note, please enjoy this episode. I will be talking to you next from another country, probably. Thailand, perhaps. And I love you all very much. All right. I am here with Francis Weller. This podcast uh, is a long time in the making. I'm really excited to have him on the show. Um, I've talked quite a bit about grief and my own journey with that on this podcast. Um, and Francis's work and his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, was super in instrumental to me in understanding that process and um, being able to sort of put words to and understand what I was going through. Um, how I'd like to sort of get started um, is maybe have you kind of talk a little bit about the work that you do, which I think is pretty unique um, and sort of who you are. And then we can go from there if that works. I'm sure we can make it work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me on your show, your podcast. Um, it's hard to kind of describe the work. It's um, what we're trying to do is actually trying to reanimate those primal practices that human beings did for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The predicament is, is that we are now forced in some ways to, to kind of grieve privately mm. uh, or you go to see a therapist, uh, but it's still very, very insulated. What the psyche, what the soul anticipated were circles of people gathering together, in a sense, grieving together. Uh, we would weep side by side. We would sing. We would cry. We would hold each other. So we're trying to bring that original matrix back into some form. Um, and when we do, and when people participate, there's a deep sense of the rightness of this gesture. I can't tell you how many times after a ritual is over, um, someone will say, you know, I've never done anything like this before, but it felt oddly familiar. Mm. See, there's a deep um, 
thread in the psyche, an ancestral thread, that if we followed it all the way back, we would be, all of us would be taken back into a place where we did remember how to grieve together when it was communal. So what we're trying to do is to uh, break the isolated context of grieving, the solitary confinement of it, and to restore that matrix where people are allowed to grieve side by side. So uh, over our weekends, we have people from all over, I mean, all over, from Australia, from England, from Canada, from Germany. from. And, and I say, it's wonderful that you're here. I mean, truly wonderful that you've taken it upon yourself to travel 10,000 miles just for the privilege of being able to grieve side by side with other human beings. I said, it's wonderful, but it's also symptomatic of the core grief that we are carrying, which is why isn't this happening in every community? Why do you have to travel thousands of miles? Why do we even have to have a workshop on grief? The very fact that we need workshops on grief speaks to something that we have forgotten how to do. It's as if we don't occupy that territory anymore psychically or communally. So it goes into the state of amnesia. Hmm. And part of what we're trying to do is, again, recall and remember. We're not making anything up. We're just trying to remember what it used to look like to be together, to, to grieve together, to hold each other in those deep, tender, broken-hearted places and see what happens when we do that. Something alchemical happens. We feel different when we come out of the ritual. We feel spacious. We feel more capable of loving this tender world. That's precisely what I'm hoping for. We call it soul activism, but it's a way of uh, responding to the conditions of the world right now that isn't so much political, um, which is important, but at a soul base, how do you respond to these conditions? Well, you try to reactivate imagination, ritual, beauty, community, poetry, um, those primary practices that helped to get human beings together. Hmm. Go ahead. I'm just yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Happy to just keep listening to you talk. Um, I would imagine that a lot of your work, I know I had to go through this learning experience too, was not only the idea of grieving together and communally, but even remembering or knowing what grief is outside of the context of the death of a person, for example. Right. Right. Um, can you talk about some of those? I know you talk about them so eloquently, like the different forms of grief or a few of them. Um, because I think a lot of us, yeah, I think don't recognize how much we have to grieve um, or feel that we have the right to if there hasn't been certain sort of major death of a human being. Yes, that's a really good point, Anya. I talk about it in terms of the five gates of grief that... Uh, Really, culturally, the only one that's formally recognized is when something you love dies or you lose, like a marriage or a home or a pet. But when someone dies, there seems to be some permission for someone to say, I'm sorry about your loss. You know, there's some way of recognizing it. But the other four gates of grief, there's virtually no recognition of that. So that just lays on us like sediment. The second gate of grief has to do with um, those parts of us that have never known love. Well, let me name the first. The first, the first gate 
is that everything you love, you will lose, which is a fierce, fierce teaching that, which is the Buddhist idea of impermanence. You get to hold on to nothing. And people often say, well, I get to hold on to the memory. I say, yeah, you get to hold on to the memory if your heart stays open to the sorrow. Now, that's the only way, because if we close the heart to the grief, we basically are also shutting down our own loving, living testament to that person's presence in our life. So those things are really important. Second gate, like I said, has to do with those parts of us that never knew love. So we all, all are raised in family systems and educational, religious systems, work, work conditions that tell us pretty clearly what's acceptable and what's not. And so those parts of us that don't fit in, the weak part, the needy part, the sad part, the angry part, the sensual part, uh, they're all told that they have to leave the building. And so we push aside huge portions of our being in order to fit in because belonging is the primary need. So we'll, we'll condition the self, we will shape a self that we think will be tolerable and provable. But we have lost huge pieces of our psychic lives and every loss to our integrity should be wept over. But we have come to learn to relate to those pieces of us with contempt, with judgment. And once we hold a part of us with judgment, you can't grieve over it. So part of the redemptive process here in the second gate of grief is to begin to make amends and to mourn over the fact that these pieces of us have been living in exile in the wasteland for decades. And I think actually for generations. Um, if I'm told that I can't be sad, did that just start with my family? Or were they also told? And were they also told? And were they also told? And were they also told? How many generations back does this grief go? All right. The third, is that pretty clear, that second gate of grief? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to elaborate on more, but I'd love to hear the other ones first, and then we can return to it. Okay. Sure. The third gate has to do with the sorrows of the world. And this one is growing in immensity every day. Uh, whether it's, for me, riding into work and seeing the roadkill on the side of the road and the erosion of uh, land that's being consumed by vineyards or monoculture and... Um, the sorrows of the world are just impinging upon us every day now with news of you know climate this isn't just climate change it's, it's really climate disruption we're seeing massive disruptions in ecological systems from amphibians to glaciers to insects to uh, songbirds to things are really in great disrepair and it's up to us as human beings to register these losses. We have to feel them in our bodies. Because if we don't, who will respond? Who will be the ones to say enough or no or stop the, the insanity? If we don't register it in our bodies, we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. Um, so that's, again, why I call it soul activism. It's, it's up to me to drive along the road and come across a clear cut and to feel it's not just a psychological projection onto the clear cut that, oh, I feel that emptiness inside me too. No, I am the receptor site. Mm. Acknowledge 
that something terrible happened here to all life forms, all the way down to the microbes, up to the you know, treetops. Um, it was a violation. As uh, Wendell Berry said, you know, there's no such thing as sacred and unsacred. There's only sacred and desecrated places. So it's up to us to acknowledge those desecrated places with protest, with our grief, with our outrage. You know? The fourth gate was a little harder to name, but it became clearer over time after sitting with many, many hundreds, if not thousands of people in ritual space. And I call that gate uh, what we expected and did not receive. And what I mean by that is that we are wired to anticipate the full spectrum of, of experiences that our deep time ancestors experienced, which was to be in ritual space together, to sing together, to share meals together, to listen to stories under the starlight at night, to sit around the fire, to gather wood, to bury our dead together, to give thanks together, to be in a central environment of the of nature. We expected all of that and almost none of that materialized. So there's this profound absence in our, in our psyches that we typically blame ourselves for that absence. People come in all the time saying they feel empty inside. And my response is, well, maybe that emptiness isn't a personal commentary, but an absence where culture has failed to provide what it is we need to thrive. And the fifth gate is uh, what I call ancestral grief. And this is becoming more and more prominent in my understanding of what we're dealing with in the room. As I was mentioning before, much of the grief we're carrying didn't really start in our lifetime. It began many generations ago. And this grief has many different aspects to it. One of them is that uh, somewhere in our own lineage, if you go back far enough, we were living in an intact tribal community. And at some point that got disrupted and there was a severance in that. And we lost place, we lost myth, we lost songs, we lost stories, we lost uh, ritual, we lost, sometimes we lose the food, uh, we lose the language. Now, this is a profound loss. Um, the very fact that we were no longer living where our ancestors were buried was a huge loss, a huge displacement. And we didn't arrive here on this continent either, our deep, our European ancestors. Uh, with humility, um, we came in and decimated the landscape and the indigenous cultures. And then we imported slavery on top of that. So that's all part of this ancestral grief that we have never metabolized as a culture. And you can see it still affecting race relationships and how we deal with the indigenous populations. It's still an untended uh, wound in the culture. And that it's gonna require a great deal of work around grieving together and making amends. <clears throat> whatever way that looks like, whether it's reparations or some major acts of atonement. Mm. So those are the five gates of grief, and that's what we're carrying day by day. You know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love number two. I I've noticed a lot of people my age are sort of coming to terms with you know, what I think is unfortunately deemed as, well, the words we use is like childhood trauma, but I think it was, it took a long time for me to recognize how slight those 
in like the how small um occurrences could have been that this doesn't for us to have this sense of like um a love we didn't find or an emptiness that this doesn't require some intense sexual or emotional or physical abuse that it can be so small and I know you give an example of your own situation with your son um in the book of just like one little conversation um and I what I've tried to describe to people because I sense this intense guilt that well I didn't have it as bad as so and so had it so therefore I don't have a right to feel this amount of pain or loss and my parents weren't bad you know and and how to um acknowledge that you know maybe maybe if we just redefined the term a little bit that this could be any event that caused us to act in a way that was self-sabotaging it could have been one little conversation it could have been a pattern over time um, but I'm curious if how you sort of talk about that and define that loss in a way that feels more um, like something we can all relate to, even if it wasn't the severe mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of us suffer from what I, what I call slow trauma. It was not an acute event, a beating or a molestation or a rape, or but it was the slow erosion in our faith, that I am welcome here, that I matter, that it's, it's important that I exist. And that erosion in that sense of value and purpose and belonging um, begins to seed a feeling state internally of shame, um, that somehow I'm, I'm not good enough. And I mean, how many times have we felt that, that somehow I don't, I don't belong because I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable or some kind of pernicious interior thought that somehow makes us feel less than. And that second gate is just populated with that feeling state of not measuring up. I mean, this is a culture that's based on shame. Everything's about comparisons. From the moment you're born, you're evaluated. Are you pretty? Are you smart? Are you, you know, athletic? Are you, you know, but everything is measured. Everything is kind of computated in terms of measuring up and the ideals that are put out there in terms of these very beautiful uh, personages, celebrities, or very wealthy or very athletic. They become the ideal for us. And how many of us measure up to that? Almost none of us do. So we're left with this chronic interior feeling of not being good enough. And so what we end up doing is, like I said before, we try to purge ourselves of anything that smacks of weakness. We live in what I call a very heroic culture. And the heroic ideal means I always have to show somehow a strong posture, capable. I mean, I've got this one. I have no weakness. I'm not vulnerable. Um, I'm always successful. Life has a way of, you know, cracking that fantasy pretty quickly. Um, but if I if I fall to my knees and I have no relationship to weakness or to the grief, I don't know how to respond to this. Then and I'm left kind of unskilled. The heroic ideal doesn't give us the skills for negotiating life's inevitable visitations 
of trauma and loss and death and illness and weakness and disappointment and frustration and failure and defeat. Those are pretty big terms. And every one of us will be will be met with them. So yeah, I I would also I guess if you can speak a bit as well, because I think we're so uneducated and have a lack of experience about this, like what does grief look like? Right. Is it, Mm. is it for me, it would, I think the only thing that I could truly define as grieving for myself was when I was really breaking down and crying. Um, And I'm curious if that's it or if you sort of define it in broader terms than that, like what does it feel like and look like experientially in the body? That's a very important question because frequently people come into my practice and they say, I'm I'm struggling with depression. Mm. And as I sit with them for a little while, it's not depression, it's oppression. It's the weight of unmetabolized grief, you know, a lifetime of sorrows that have not been tended and they settle on us and they become a very weighty, heavy, dense, um, oppressive material. The word grief comes from the root word gravis, which means heavy. So you can feel that when there's been a loss in your life, there's a heaviness. It's hard to move your feet. It's hard to lift your head. Um, the, The pull of grief is towards the ground. We fall on our knees. We we are, we are we're drawn to the to be close to the earth. Um, I would say that grief is not just tears. I would say that grief is also outrage. Mm. That uh, when we see something happening to our world or to our culture, uh, it saddens us. It breaks our heart. And the proper response to that is to be outraged. So at the grief rituals, there's a lot of bellowing that goes on down at the shrine. There's a lot of outrage to say that what happened to their body or to what's happening to our world is unacceptable. So yes, lots of tears, lots of grieving, lots of snot, but there's also a lot of, uh, not just anger, but outrage. Something has violated the basic tenet of what it looks like to be a human being and our souls protest. See, grief to me is a protest. It's a refusal to live numb and small because when grief grabs you, as you may have noticed, um, it takes over. We shake, we tremble, we weep unexpectedly, uncontrollably at times. Um, We're highly affected by it. And rather than seeing it as a deadened state, people get afraid of grief. It's actually a very vital and alive state. It's feral and you cannot domesticate grief. That's part of what I love about it. It's wild. Um, and anybody who knows the, the immediate impact of grief from a, from a particularly difficult death or loss, you can't tell me that it's a dead state. It's exceedingly alive. Grief also has the capacity to, like I say, keep the heart open and soft. If we close ourselves off again to our grief, the heart turns cold. 
and it, it congeals and hardens. And we can tell people who have had losses in their life that they have not processed, they turn bitter. So it's a, it's a soul practice too, to stay close to our grief, which in a way is a matter of keeping, keeping it warm, keeping it tended by our affection, by our care, by our attention, by our sharing it with the right people, um, by our expressing it through writing or dance or art or some form. Um, it's a very vital alive territory. But we're uneducated, we're grief phobic. So we're terrorized. I mean, what I've noticed in many, many workshops and also in my practice here is that when grief comes up, it's rarely just a grief moment, it's a grief terror moment, a grief panic moment. It's as if the territory scares us. We don't know how to be in relationship with it because it's been such a foreign and unacknowledged presence in our life. So when it comes up, it scares us. And we need to become familiar again and learn that grief is not just an emotion, but it's also a core human faculty. It's, a, it's an immensely important skill to be able to grieve well so we can stay current in our life. If we don't know how to grieve well, all of those losses back up behind us and they become a gravitational pull, pulling us out of our own life. You notice that much of what we deal with is long gone, but we haven't grieved it adequately. So we're not really in the current moment. We do grief work so we can get current. We can be here. And I like that term because it also speaks to current, like electricity. Mm. The current, like the flow of, of water. We're inside of something that's vital, alive, moving, um, rather than always facing our past and our un, undigested pieces of sorrow. Have you, I, I've done basically no psychedelics in my life. And I think that's a very big trend and something that's quite popular nowadays. And I've also, I'll often, I'm close to a lot of people that have, and I often ask them if you could sort of summarize what you got from that experience, um, what would that be? And I'm always shocked that what they say is rather identical to what I got from grieving <laughs> that the, the, the grief was a psychedelic experience and awakened me to things that, you know, like I, I just felt like I was channeling things magically, you know, and that's why your book was so helpful in opening it and being like, Oh, okay, I get this. This is why I was awakened to all of these different things. Um, have you described it like that or heard anyone describe it in that? in those terms no but i love it <laughs> <laughs> um i do know that when we are you know, sharing our grief communally that invariably um, there's a feeling of joy that arises and spaciousness that arises which i think happens in a lot of these mdma trips and uh, lsd trips um, they're confirming something core about our, our kind of our innate capacity to not be tight or controlled. It's a wonderful little line that I found, unfortunately, after I wrote the book by a Spanish poet, Jaime Gil de Biedma, who said, I thought I wanted to be a poet, but deep down, 
I want it to be a poem. And I think that's what we're wanting. That's that idea of being current in our life. We're more verb than noun. We're more a movement, a rhythm, a dance, a poem, a song. And I think that's partly what you get a glimpse of in any kind of psychedelic trip. But you also get a glimpse of that in deep uh, ritual process. Uh, it opens us up to the living current of our life. And, uh, I think that's gorgeous. I think that's beautiful. I think that's what we yearn for, is to be unselfconsciously alive. To forget about ourselves, you know, for whole afternoons, rather than walking around self-consciously scrutinizing every move I make, but just to relax and become part of the living, breathing, sensuous planet. That's what we're after. Mm -hmm. That's what we seek. And that's why we meditate. That's why we pray. That's why we do drugs. That's why we do yoga. We're trying to get out of these stuck stories, these you know habitual um, definitions that we kind of wrap ourselves in and come much more into the current moment. Yeah, yeah I love that you brought up joy because I think there's also this sort of very spiritual bypassy thing around gratitude <laughs> that, you know, we'll just be happy all the time and there's so much to be grateful for comparatively to other people and... Um, at least for me, the deepest depths of sorrow were, were also where I was in touch with the most gratitude and the most joy, which I don't think I would have. That's one of those things I feel like you have to experience and not just like hear <laughs> and accept. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming too, in your work, there's a lot of that. I mean, I know you've written, you wrote about it in your book, this expectation that we just like happiness is the, the pinnacle of how we, how we're supposed to be. And like, that's enlightenment is to sort of always right. be calm right. and grateful. Right. Gratitude is, is beautiful. I love, we just had our 19th annual gratitude gathering, three days of giving thanks together. Uh, and there's always grief at that ritual. And there's always gratitude at our grief rituals. And that's why I say in my book that the mark of a mature human being is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other, and to be stretched large by these two presences. And to pick up only one or the other doesn't work. If I only pick up grief over time, I will become cynical and bitter. If I only pick up gratitude, I remain a little bit superficial. I don't develop a deep compassion for other people's suffering. So I need both. I need to be able to hold on to these simultaneously. There were several people at our retreat, this, this gratitude gathering, who had just recently come to uh, grief rituals as well with me. And on the after, in the evening on uh, Saturday, we have a feast together and we toast. And one of my toasts was, I want to acknowledge the courage of those who are in the mo in the presence of deep sorrow, you know, deep, deep losses that you're carrying in your hearts, and yet you still remember the necessity of saying thank you. I want to honor you for that. They're living it. They were there living this grief, gratitude, tension beautifully. You know, no one could deny that. <clears throat> this couple lost their son, you know, a few
few months ago and another woman lost her sister just a few months ago and they weren't there to, to be kind of cajoled out of their grief but to find the companion to their grief which is gratitude you know side by side in any given moment like you said you know in the depth of your grief you also maybe turned sideways one morning and saw a sunrise that just astonished you. And they were there side by side. We don't have to get rid of one to have the other. They, they are sisters, eternal sisters, grief and gratitude. And I, and I was that the same can be said, I guess, to grief and love as well. I love how you talk about um, something around like that, the love that you have for someone when they're alive, like that your grief becomes the new relationship with them, that these are the same yeah. things in different iterations of each other. That's right. That's well said. Yeah. That, that, you know, this is this very small print in any love relationship is that you will lose them either through their disappearance or yours. And the fidelity to that love means staying open to that grief once they're gone. That is the new relationship. Now has this quality to it. And to love them means I need to stay open to missing them, to longing for them, to weeping over them, to still talking to them, and keeping that relationship alive through the grief. Yeah. Do people ever express any fear that in entering, like fully accepting the grief, fully accepting the loss, that by doing that will be a disconnection, that if they don't hold on really tightly, that they will lose that person or that thing or that concept? I, yeah, I've heard that expressed, but I find the opposite to be true. Right. Again, doing the grief work keeps the heart open and... And so doing honors the love that was there all along in that relationship. So, yeah, we have very funny ideas about um, how do we protect this. But I think that the greatest protection is by, by honoring what was there and what is there now in a different shape, different form. We love them in the absence of them. Well, that's... That's as holy as anything else, as Oscar Wilde said, you know, where there's sorrow, there's holy ground. So to, to honor our beloveds, our parents, our partners, our children, our friends, that's a sacred vigil. You know, we have forgotten the ancestors pretty much because we are a culture that relies primarily, or I should say the dominant culture relies primarily on progress. We're always moving forward. Well, that means we can never hold what was with the same amount of value. Well, damn, this has cost us huge problems. In our obsession with progress, we have forgotten those things that made us human. So honoring ancestors was a deep part of who we were as a species, and many cultures still do that. We not so much. We barely know where our parents are buried, you know. Yeah, and I wonder too if that obsession and focus and framing of progress leads us to think, you know, if I go to that space or I do that, that, you know, I'll never return. Like we see things as such a linear process. We don't see them as cyclical. So it's like, 
oh, if I move into this grief space, I'm just going to be in the grief space, but there's no opportunity to kind of circle mm-hmm. back around. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's part of our ignorance. Yeah. We, don't, we don't trust grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the idea of there being stages to grief because I don't, that's not how I experience it. But, uh, but it's, it's not there to take us hostage. Not, it's not trying to take us. What it's asking us to do is to ripen as mature human beings. Grief is one of the most tempering of, of encounters as far as ripening us and growing us up. If you're really willing to stay in the fierce heat of that sorrow, you will be cooked. You will be ripened into somebody uh, who knows how to be a, a human being on, in the streets. I call it the taking up an apprenticeship with sorrow. And that this apprenticeship, like the old time apprenticeships, you know, from many centuries, even until now, there's still apprenticeship programs and electronics and different things. The goal of that apprenticeship was to, over sometimes 10, 20 years, was to achieve a level of what they call mastery. You become a master painter, a master craftsman, a master weaver, or in soul language, that apprenticeship of sorrow leads you long-term into becoming an elder. That's really the deep work of grief, is to reshape you over and over and over again into someone capable of standing in the winds of grief, not just your own, but what's happening in the streets and what's happening in the culture. And that's an elder. An elder is able to digest not only their own, but to help to metabolize the sorrows of the youth and not turn away, uh, but to boldly step toward it with a certain degree of, of skill and gravitas. You know? Yeah, yeah the, the ritual aspect of it, I think, I mean, we've lost that in so many ways. I, I um, studied uh, gender and sexuality in school and I'm very obsessed with uh gender or femininity and masculinity, like the energetic aspects of those and how I think young people don't ever have the opportunity to really mature into either or both of those. Um, And I think we see things like the military or gangs as like the sort of fake initiatory ritual experience, but it isn't. Um, Can you talk a bit about what, uh, those grief rituals used to look like and what you try and recreate now to sort of like hold space for this process? Um, what they used to look like, I mean, we have to look at anthropology. Yeah. yeah. Or, um, or just what, what they, what you create um, sort of. Well, right. What we do now. And again, the reason why we utilize ritual is that it's the most ancient form of language we speak. They think, and I'm, th- I'm speaking of uh, archaeologists and anthropologists, that we were probably doing ritual before we had language. Uh, the oldest, oldest sites on the planet are burial sites. So for 300, 400,000 years, we have been ritually burying each other, acknowledging some belief in something more than just this single life. And ritual is the uh, pitch, it's the gestures that we make communally to 
take us into an altered state of being. Um, the intention of ritual is to derange us, which is an uncomfortable thought. But the purpose of ritual is to knock us out of our current orbit. We need to be deranged periodically because the current arrangement isn't working. And we need to be rearranged in, in ways that are closer to how the soul wants to express itself at this time. So you don't want to come out of a ritual the same as you went in. You want to go into the ritual and be shaken by it. It has to have enough heat and enough intensity to shake you so that you do something you don't normally do at the grocery store, which is that you're on your knees wailing side by side with other human beings, you know, maybe eight wide, 10 wide, all of us down there weeping together. Now, this does not happen in ordinary life. It can only happen, certain things can only happen in ritual space. And particularly like something like that. Uh, you don't do this at the hardware store or, you know, it requires a space set aside, which is one of the reasons why we end up holding our grief a lot is because the conditions aren't set up. Our psyche knows what to anticipate, what we need. I mean, even funerals now are so thin and flaccid that you almost end up apologizing if you cry at a funeral. Oh, I'm sorry, I lost control. Well, damn it, that's why we're there. We're there to weep together, to just fall on our knees and just say how sad and broken we are that this loved person is gone. We can't kiss them anymore. We can't hold them anymore. We can't give them a call anymore. They're gone. And we don't politely, you know, no, that's not what's needed. Many cultures have this, this idea that the soul requires a river of tears to get to the other side, to get to the land of the ancestors. Well, if we're not crying, if we're not wailing and weeping, in some way we could imagine that they're kind of stuck, that the ancestors can't get there. They can't get there from here. Um, I forget your question. But it, was <laughs> it was about ritual. It was perfect. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, before... Uh, we run out of time. I, I wanted to speak a bit more to the sort of nature planetary aspect of this. I think it was maybe the clearest message I got through my own experience was all with all of this was a deep connection to, and maybe panic is the wrong word, but finally recognizing um, the intensity of what's going on in terms of the planet. And, not to sort of speak in conspiracy terms, but I do think that the system works in such a way to sort of keep us apart, which prevents us from grieving, which prevents us, you know, in these, and we're in these cities and these sort of little isolated bubbles where we don't recognize and we're not in touch with um, what's going on. And I mean, I definitely spent so much time alone in nature during all of this. And mm. I felt sort of held by nature in a way that, um, like I didn't, I didn't have people to agree with. I, I, I sort of tried to just enter into the situation by myself. And that was the place that I felt a part of something, I guess. I, I felt a part of a group of trees yeah. and yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so what, yeah, like that connection, I think there's a quote in your book, but 
that this is used to be so such common knowledge the the deep connective tissue between us and the planet um that we have failed to sort of recognize in this day and age and if wondering if for you you feel that grief is integral in terms of what we need to do in order to address this seriously absolutely i mean i the only well i shouldn't say it that way but the thread of hope i hold on to uh is that the nile is breaking and it may be the broken heart that saves our butts it may be the broken heart that is capable of falling in love again with this world and giving whatever we can you know and doing whatever we can to protect and preserve what is left and maybe if we can participate in the repair but grief i think is is the front line of our response to this world i loved seeing was it in Iceland they did a grief ritual for a glacier that is no longer there mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge it we just did a <clears throat> grief ritual several months ago for the nearly 200 whales that have washed up there on the shores of California and Oregon and Washington you know they're starving to death i mean what are we supposed to do i can't fix that but i can acknowledge it i can grieve it and that can keep my heart open to finding ways to respond I remember giving a talk up in uh, Victoria, Canada some years ago. We were talking about this very issue on you. And a young woman about your age asked a question, so what's the answer? I said, there isn't one. But there's a response. And every one of us must discern the response that we are being asked to make. There's no single answer to this problem. But every one of us is wired for a response. You're doing this podcast as a response. You know, you caring about what's going on as a response. You're making choices every day about how you live your life. That's a response. The kindness you show to other people who are struggling and suffering, that's a response. We have to decipher the response. And I think we also have to try to bridge to our own local watersheds to become intimate there and to develop some sense of relationship to whatever is in your watershed that you can do to participate that's like i said we're doing the grief ritual we um i've done many rituals for environmental activists here in the in the county of sonoma um uh, you can feel how heavy and dense they are with grief and so they burn out and is an ironic that they end up being consumed by fire they burn out whereas grief ritual is a water ritual it helps to soothe and to open and to release what has been you know stored up in the body um, what else i would say about that oh yeah i do um it's interesting for me to tie the last question about initiation ritual I look to see who's fighting the most fiercely on the environmental front. And it's often indigenous people. Um and not to glamorize, but you know, where where initiation is still intact, there is a deep felt sense of identity that fuses with the landscape. They're not protecting it 
abstractly or uh, altruistically. They're protecting the land because it is them. This is me in the shape of a tree, in the shape of a river, in the shape of a turtle. It's, that's me you're killing. And with your oil, you know, when you're fracking. And, but they are the ones fighting the most fiercely because in some ways that separation hasn't occurred between land and being, between soul and soil. There is a bridge. There is a, an intimate link between those two things. And we're trying to remember that again. Um, we have been partitioned down to individualistic cells rather than part of a body, part of a continuum of being where individual cells bouncing off of other individual cells bouncing off of other individual cells. So even when we're in a circle, we're still a collective of individuals. We don't know how to think like a village, much less think like a watershed, which is what our minds need to return to. How do we think this way? And I think grief is part of that, opening back up to remembering that I am intimately entangled with every living thread that surrounds me. And how could I not be? How could I not be intimate with heron and um, lichen and turtle and salmon? And that's all of who we are. Yeah. And they're leaving us in vast numbers. And we have to say, I am so sorry, and I miss you, and I will do what I can to preserve those that remain. Yeah, and that the word bridge, I speak about anger in that way, that it's a, a bridge, not a parking lot, but that it's necessary to, yeah. like, to have outrage about what's going on in order to get Absolutely. to the place where we can grieve. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was wonderful. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, before we wrap up, uh, I would like you to let everyone know where they can find you and learn more about what you do. And then I also ask everyone if they could recommend um, one book to the audience that either has something to do with this conversation or just one that was really meaningful to you in your life. What would it be? Mm. Well, they can get a hold of me or follow what I'm doing out in the world. Um, at uh, franciswelder.net with an I, Francis. One book. Well, that's a challenging one. There's so many. Um, well, I'm going to probably uh, recommend a book that no one's ever heard of. It's called Coming Home to the Pleistocene. It's a book by Paul Shepard. Paul was a um, human biologist who studied our whole evolutionary process and said we reached our peak as a species in the Pleistocene. And it's been a downhill slide since then, since agriculture came along. But what he writes about in that book helps us to remember our original track. How, what shaped our minds, what shaped the psyche, how we lived in community. Uh, I love his writing. He's the one you might have been referencing in that quote in that third or fourth gate about um, the grief and sense of loss 
that we often attribute to a failure in our personality is actually a feeling of emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness should have been encountered. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. This was welcome, a wonderful way to spend an hour. <laughs> and thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank Many you. Many blessings on you. Thank you. Offering to the world. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening to that show. Please, please, please check out Francis Weller's work and his book. If you resonate with any of this, I guarantee that book will change your life. Today, I am going to play you out with one of my favorite songs. I have known forever that when I did end up finally recording this episode with Francis, that this is the song I wanted to use. I can't tell you how many times I listened to this song over the past couple years. It's called Every Kingdom, and it's by Holly Aerosmith. Uh, she has an, a- an album called uh, A Dawn I Remember, and the whole thing is fantastic. But this song in particular, I think it was the first one I heard, actually, and it is definitely my favorite. Um, the lyrics are so perfect, not just for this episode, which I always knew that they would be, this episode being the interview I did with Francis, but also everything I've been talking about in terms of transitions and the grief in change. Um, All of the lyrics are great. I encourage you to look them up or listen to them as you listen to the music. Um, But a couple of passages that I like quite a bit that I wanted to read before I play it. Well, time is a giver and time is a thief. For all that we lose, we surely must grieve. And grief is a friend we don't know till we meet. She walks alongside us till we find relief. Well, I have lost friends, lovers, and dreams. Out of these trembling hands have fallen many things. But inside is a fire burning. It purges and it urges me on. Fucking great. As always, if you want to support the show, please just tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes, click some stars to rate it, hit subscribe. But thank you all so much for being here and for listening. It's been an epic year one of this podcast, and I can't wait to continue it with all of you and grow it even farther and meet all of you and introduce you all to each other so we can all help remind each other how fucking beautiful this world and this life really is. Talk to you next time.
try on.